0: Hey, good morning. Uh, really, as always, super glad to see you and uh, to get to chat with you all out there and everything. Um, if you've got your Bible, um, you can turn it to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we're going to hang out there, or at least very close to there, as we go about the morning here. Uh, my name is Bob. I am an Arbor attendee, um, but I get to hop up here and talk every once in a while. So obviously, uh very excited to do that. This weekend... Uh, I've noticed actually a lot of us are walking in like zombies, um, like extra this weekend. I know that's like every weekend, but um, my wife and I, uh, same thing. We uh, took part in my sisters, one of my sisters, I should say, in her wedding uh, yesterday. So my little sister Tori got married. Um, So Tori Lee is now Tori Santucci. The opportunities to join this gene pool are shrinking. I just want you to know because I don't have any siblings left. So if you're trying to get into the Lee family... You gotta get on that. Um, So anyway, so Tori got married yesterday, and my wife Ruth was the matron of honor, uh, because she's married, I guess it's the matron, right? Uh, Matron of honor, she had a big job. Our daughter was the flower girl, so she had a big job. My middle son was the ring bearer, so he had a big job. And I also had a job, and that was to keep our two-year-old from ruining the whole event. And I did a good job. I, ex- I succeeded just as good as anyone. Um, the, the reason I bring that up is because I am exhausted from keeping my two-year-old from destroying my sister's wedding. And um, also because the wedding itself actually plays a, a really good metaphor for what we're going to chat about this morning. Um, when you have two people who, you know, come together, they get married, they essentially become united together. Uh, And and it's a beautiful thing. There are a lot of similarities between our relationship with Jesus and a marriage. And it talks about that actually in in Ephesians 5. But one of the other things that happens when two people become united together, um, and sometimes it's... you know, it's not the most fun part of a wedding, is two families. It's not just the two people. It's two families that are kind of brought together and united together, right? So so in this case, we've got the Lee family. That's my clan, right? And then you've got the Santucci family. Um, and they're like this beautiful family. They've got this beautiful cabin on Lake Cabin, all this really fun stuff. Just a, just a great family to, to, you know, now be become a part of. Um, and don't get me wrong, the Lee family, we're awesome. But, you know, we're... We're sitting at this rehearsal dinner, uh, and Tori and Bob are going to get married, and it's, that's like a match made in heaven. But then you've got these two families who are light years apart. The Lee family is looking at like all these forks and stuff, and these plates and fancy dishes with like wine instead of beer, and like we're not. I was actually ax- asking Ruth, like, I don't know which fork to use. Is can I use any of them? And she said, No, it's from the outside in, and that's just classic Lee stuff, right? We have no clue how to operate in society. Um, So in a a marriage, when two people come together, it's not just the two people. It's actually kind of a collision of two families. And the point I want to make today and draw out of the text for today is it's the same thing when you become a disciple of Jesus. Not only are you united to Jesus, disciples are united to Jesus, but you also are becoming united with his other disciples. It's part of the gig. It's something that happens, and it's actually a beautiful thing, and it's a hard thing, and it's something we've got to deal with and, and walk through life in, um, and it's actually a, a, it turns out to be an incredibly freeing and, and beautiful story that he's telling through it. Um, so that's where I'm going today. So let's jump into it. So everything that you read in the Bible— happened in a specific time and place. Whether you're reading it from the Old Testament or whether it's from the New Testament, whether it's Jesus teaching or, you know, it's way back in the day and Moses is doing something, um, it happened in a specific time and place. And so knowing that context and where, where it was written helps you to actually know the author's intent. So that way you can take that intent and then you can see how that fits today in 2017. Because if this was written in 2017, it would be a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different stories, a lot of different even meanings, even if they're using the same words. And we don't get to just make up meaning. It, there's a context for everything. Um, so what I want to do today is help uh, unpack the context of ...of what's going on um, in Jesus in the life of the disciples. Because I forgot to mention, that is the series that we're in. We're like week four into a series called Disciples. Uh, And today I'll be talking about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So let's start with Matthew 10, uh, verses one through four. It says, and he, this is Jesus, ...and he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. We talked about Peter a couple weeks ago. And Andrew, his brother. Jake talked about Andrew last week. Uh, There's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. I talked about John three weeks ago. Uh, There's Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, who betrayed Jesus. So that's the list of the original, you know, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Uh, You'll notice that two people in that list have uh, identifiers next to their names that aren't family identifiers. So you've got some people who are like, you know, the brother of, or the son of. So that's pretty normal, because people were... You know, associated with their family, especially back then. but there are two people that are they have distinctions next to their names that have nothing to do with their family. And first, you have Simon the zealot. Uh, actually, first it was Matthew the tax collector, and then second you have Simon the zealot. The fact that that is drawn out in the text and that those two identifiers are used is actually significant. There's a lot of context that surrounds um, what's going on in that list because of those two um, positions and their roles in society. So we're going to kind of draw out the, the meaning of that. Um, so let's start with the context of the day. One of the big things you have to, to understand, and it even helps to like, be able to feel it and sense what it was like, right? Um, one of the big things that was happening back then was Roman occupation of the entire land and stuff that the whole Bible was written. So the Romans were in power. Um, I think they took over the, the Holy Land, if you will, Israel, in about 60 B.C. But I actually, I, don't quote me on that. I think it was 60 B.C. And then they uh, had power over most of the known world um, in that time. So with occupation from the Romans, uh, it came a whole system that they brought wherever they, wherever they occupied. Um, each region had governors or uh, almost like mini kings under Caesar who was in Rome. Um, With those governors um, uh, came—the governors, it was their job to maintain control or keep the peace or squelch any rebellion, things like that. So you've probably heard of Herod and Pilate and different rulers um, back in the day. Those were Roman governors, essentially, of different regions under Roman occupation. Um, Another thing that came with Roman occupation were garrisons or uh, places where soldiers, centurions, right, would be uh, stationed, essentially— all over the empire, uh, same thing, to make sure that they were going to keep the peace. If they were going to uh, expand the empire, then these garrisons would build a force and then they would move from that place and they would uh, keep the you know, Roman uh, expansion going. You have to understand, it's much like today, right? If we were occupied, we would have this... Um, visceral reaction to being occupied. If Canada were somehow able to roll into Washington State, their entire force, and they took over Washington State, you better believe that as good old Washingtonians, we would have something going on with that, and we would, we would not um, like it. But you have to understand that when this happened, when there was Roman occupation in um, Israel, it had kind of a different flavor to it. Because uh, one of the biggest reasons that the Jewish people despised being occupied was because of their utter adherence to the idea that only God gets to rule us. They were a theocracy, essentially. Um, so when, when Caesar, who essentially claims to be God, rolls in and says, hey, I'm your, I am your king, I am your true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and they're all these even like the same, they use the same terms, like they would use the word gospel. It was the gospel of the Caesar, like the good news that the Caesar's coming into town or his rule is coming in. So when they heard things like that, it would make them, like their skin would crawl because to them... Only God gets to rule us, and especially, they. only God gets to rule this land, this chosen uh, land. So there's this whole religious element to it for them. Um, Rome was a nation of the pantheon, right? So they had all these gods that they worshipped, idols and things like that. So everywhere they went, they took that with them. So they would have rolled into Jerusalem and the, the whole region, and they would have brought their ways, their gods, and things like that. And that, again, would have just made... The Israelites, just their skin would be crawling. Um, the The cross itself, like we've all heard that Jesus died on a cross, but you have to remember that that wasn't a one time event where only Jesus died on a cross. That's something that happened. The Romans brought the cross to bear on anyone who would rebel against Caesar. So that's something like if we were a people and we were occupied, each of us would know someone who died on a cross, was publicly humiliated and shamed and tortured to death by our occupiers. In our guts, we would feel a literal hatred for the people occupying us if we were in the same context. You'll remember that when Jesus was um, born, the Herod, the ruler, was told that there was this baby born and there was prophecy about him that he was the true king. And so Herod, uh, afraid for his own kingship of the region, Um, wanted to find out who it was, and he couldn't, so what did he do? He had all the toddlers in that town killed who were age two and under. You've got to take time to picture what that would have been like. If we here today in the United States heard that even somewhere else in the United States, that some occupying force rolled into a town and slaughtered all the two-year-olds of that town, let alone if it was Kirkland, right? If it was our town, if it was my two-year-old who was part of that, I wouldn't be on this earth much longer because I would find the nearest Roman soldier or Roman anything, and I would go out in a blaze of glory on a pile of brass from all the guns I could find, right? That's how that would go down, even knowing what I know today, just because there would be something, this reaction in me that would be so like visceral, right? That's reality for, for these folks. They live under Roman occupation, Another part of it was um, the soldiers who were at these garrisons and things, sometimes they would have to move from one place. Like, let's say there's a uh, a, a soldier from Rome, and he was dispatched to go to wherever, Judea. So on his way down there, it's not like he had necessarily, like, everything given to them like the army does for you today, and they take care of your room and board wherever you go. For them, it was, we're going to find a ship. Let's say there's 12 of them. We're going to find a ship. We're going to go to the the island or whatever, and then we're going to roll up on someone's house, and we're going to knock on their door, because we're the occupiers of the whole region, and we're going to say, guess what? Here we are. We're hungry. Where's the guest room? And we're going to roll in. That's how Roman occupation worked, right? It's not like they were the most polite group. Uh, they were able to compel room and board. I read somewhere that they were actually able to, or allowed by law to compel people to carry their gear for up to a mile. So what they would do is they would roll up to someone with all their stuff and say, here, we're walking that way. And you would drop your stuff and you would carry this soldier's gear, which is I'm sure not lightweight uh, back in the day. It's not even today. And you would carry it for a mile. So when Jesus says, if someone tries to take your cloak Give him your tunic as well. This is Matthew 5. If someone tries to make you walk with them for one mile, go with them two. When he says that, it seems like a weird statement to make until you understand that it's spoken in a specific context. What he's saying is, yeah, if they make you carry it a mile, and you get to the mile, and the guy's like, yeah, drop it, whatever, and you're like, nope, I'm going to keep going, it's actually brilliant. Because all of a sudden, you're transferring his authority, which he has made you do, and all of a sudden, you're saying, uh-uh, I'm going to go another mile. It ain't your authority I'm following. I'm on my own dime now. And it leaves that soldier in a really weird spot. I think it's a brilliant command by Jesus to, make to, to walk that second mile. Because all of a sudden, the soldier's like, I, I could make him stop, but I want him to carry it for a second mile. Uh, okay. And he's kind of falling like a puppy dog. It's <laughs> awesome. So, But it's spoken in a specific time and place where Roman soldiers were able to do this um, to the people. Uh, so the thing, the context, I guess, that I'm hoping that we at least feel for a moment is wide, like widespread hatred for this occupying force. Maybe not for individuals, but for the very idea of it, for all these um, various reasons. One of the things that they most despised, too, was the heavy taxation that occupation brought. So the Romans, to fund their occupation, and to defund everything that was happening with Caesar and his kingdom and all that stuff... They would actually tax the places that they went. So for fishermen, their catch was taxed. If you're a farmer, your crop is taxed. If you have anything going on, it's taxes, taxes, taxes. Hasn't changed a bit. Roman occupation lives. Um, So taxes taxes were a huge deal. But again, for them to offer their money to an idolater, Caesar essentially, made their skin crawl. They absolutely abhorred being taxed, especially the way they did. And so this... Roman occupation flavored everything when a when a Jewish person woke up in the morning it's not like it was necessarily the only thing on their mind but it they would look out their they didn't have windows but they would look outside and they would see evidence of being occupied it was something that was part of their everyday life and that's a good place to or a good context to understand what's going on cuz Jesus is actually calling his disciples to follow him in that place so so with that context in mind what I want to do is basically compare and contrast the two disciples that we're going to focus on today. And we'll start with Simon and the Zealots, which sounds like a band name, but it's not. Um, He's just part of a a group, if you will. Um, So what does it mean to be a zealot? Uh, I was reading a book recently by uh, George Barna, and he writes a book about discipleship, and he uh, talks about what does it mean to be a zealot. He's making the point that disciples should be zealots in general. And so What he does is he compares a zealot with a follower. So I'm going to read his quote because I think it's pretty helpful to first understand what a zealot even is um, in general. So he says, You and I are followers of many different people, organizations, activities, and ideas. For instance, this is him talking, I follow the Yankees. When they win a game, I'm happy for a few seconds, and then I get on with my life. When the Yankees lose a game, I'm disappointed for a few seconds, and then I get on with my life. I am not a Yankees zealot, a person who is single-mindedly invested in the day-to-day fortunes of that team. A zealot is a raving, unequivocal, undeterrable adherent to an ideal or person. So there's a difference between being a follower of something and a zealot for something. And you've got Simon, who when his his name is listed in the, the list of disciples, they always put Simon the zealot, uh, which is pretty fascinating because uh, the zealots were a movement um, back then. They became more of a movement after this time of where Jesus has his disciples, especially like in the AD 60s. That's when like they were at their peak and like if you said the zealots, it was an actual like thing. But even before that, the zealots were a movement of people and they had different expressions. They all weren't the same. So um, one group of zealots would have been just mostly religiously zealous. Like, think the Pharisees, if you've ever heard of them. They were the people who not only had the Old Testament law, but then they had, like, layers upon layers of, you know, hundreds of more laws that they would, um, say, like, interpret the laws that you have in the Old Testament. They had hundreds of them. They were very, very serious and zealous uh, for the law. I had a New New Testament professor at uh, Northwest University when I went there. His name was Dr. Charette. Super smart guy. Um, he had red hair. He uh, that's integral to the, his brilliance. Um, so he, he told us in one class, and I still, don't, uh, I still haven't forgot it. I've forgotten a lot that he's said, but uh, he said that the Pharisees get knocked all the time because Jesus has some very harsh things to say about them, how their hearts like long to be first at the dinner table and all these things. They're full of pride. But he said one thing that you don't realize, and, and you can read in like, the surrounding text, not just the New Testament, is they had a zealousness for the law for actually for a good reason. Um, they actually believed that if they could get the people of Israel to follow God's law, even if only for a short time, but if they got everyone united and on the same track and actually following what the, the Old Testament told them to do, uh, the law, the Pentateuch, then they believed that that's when God would usher in salvation and bring about the Messiah and all that stuff. So when they're like super hardcore about the law and about all the little, the letter of the law and things like that, he said there's actually... It's tainted because there's pride and things like that, but there's actually a good part of that, too. They, they literally believe that that's what would bring salvation. They were desperately wrong, but um, that's what was going on. So with zealots, you had those who were um, just extremely religiously focused. You also had some who were revolutionaries. They walked around with such hatred for, for the Roman occupation. Who knows? Maybe they're the ones that their two-year-olds you know, were, were, were slaughtered or whatever. You better believe I'd become a zealot in that case. But you had these revolutionaries, and some of them were on the rural side of things. So they would be like out in the wilderness... They would form bands, and then they would go to these towns, and they would perform raids. And in those raids, whether that would be stealing stuff from the Romans or actually, like, attacking the Romans, whatever it might be, they would perform raids, and then they would retreat back to the wilderness, hide in the caves or whatever they could find, and regroup and try to do it again. And you can actually read about different uh, rebellions that that occurred in that day and age. Those were the zealots who were doing that. There's another group that I was reading about called the Sicarii. Um, I don't know if that's the way you say it, that's the way it's spelled, and that's the name of the dagger that they would carry, and these guys were more like the urban version of that, and they mostly operated alone, so they'd be in like a crowd of people, maybe it's Jerusalem or whatever, and uh, there'd be Romans and things like that, and they would take out their dagger, they would actually attack like a Roman or some Roman sympathizer, and then they would disappear into the crowd. And they would like go home, and they wouldn't like run to the, you know the hills or the caves or whatever they would just sort of disappear into nothingness in the crowd and, um, and they wouldn't be able to be found so zealots it, w- it was a thing like uh, an absolute hatred for Roman occupation, no matter what, if it was religiously focused or like violent like that's a spectrum, um, there were different things that united them in how they thought. there was an absolute devotion to god's rule alone amongst all of them. They hated, hated, hated Roman occupation. There was a wholehearted commitment to liberty or freedom from outside rule and to be ruled by God alone. There was a hatred of taxation. This is a uh, quality they shared. And they all had a passion to unite together and rebel. The Romans were a force to be reckoned with. They, they weren't going to win a battle against the Romans, right? But you better believe they had this constant thought of the Romans' clock is ticking. They're not going to be here forever. There's just this bubbling up hatred for them, right? You might read this list of four things and think, one, two, three, yeah, I guess I'm a zealot. I can check each one of those boxes, especially number three. Um, <laughs> but for them, it was something that they were united in in an absolute hatred. So Simon the Zealot. You can picture Jesus. He's got you know Peter and the, like, the fishermen and stuff, and he's walking with his disciples, as they do, right? And then he sees, I don't know, we don't know. It, there's nothing more written in here about Simon the Zealot. Um, he's named in a few lists, and that's about it. But you can almost imagine him walking with a few of his disciples. There's not 12 yet, and he sees Simon the Zealot, with however that looks for his life, and he's like, oh, this is going to be good. Simon, follow me. And Simon, like all the rest of them, he drops whatever he's doing. Hopefully he drops the dagger, if that's part of it. And he falls in line, and he joins Peter and James and John and all of them. And I bet they're like this just took a turn. Yeah, I don't, okay, we're gonna take shifts tonight. I'll sleep from nine to midnight. You sleep from midnight to three, things like that. So Simon joins the ranks. Later it says, if you read the early church stuff, he was likely martyred in Ethiopia, stabbed to death for testimony about Jesus. Um, And he came into discipleship with very, very strong uh, political convictions. So you've got Roman occupation. You've got the zealots who hate it. So now let's shift our thinking for a second to Matthew and the tax collectors. A much worse band name, <coughs> but it would work. It would work if we had to make it work. Um, so in Matthew chapter 9, from, from verses 9 through 12, I'll read about where Matthew is called. There's more written about Matthew, and this is from the book of Matthew, which, yes, was likely written by the same Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. So here's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew... He's also called Levi, actually, in other places. So a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said that Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, there's a group of zealots for you, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a big question that's asked right there because they're essentially saying, you want to be like your rabbi. But look at this fool. He's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. You don't want to become that. So that question is loaded. Uh, but it keeps going. But when he heard it, that's Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And it goes on to say, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you've got... Uh, you've got a group called the, the tax collectors, right? This is a thing back then. Whenever, when, when Rome would roll into a town and they were going to occupy this region, you know, they beat their armies or however that looked in, in the specific regions, what they would do is they would instill tax collection to raise the funds that they needed. Sometimes they would uh, it would be almost like today, almost like an IRS. They would have city officials who were in charge of doing the taxes. Other times, I read that they would actually auction off the position so that the, the highest bidder could collect the taxes because this was a business opportunity like no other back in the day. Because that tax collector was then charged to collect taxes for all the different things. But the tax collection system was kind of like it is today, and it was kind of unclear in exactly how much do I owe. Like for me today, when I do taxes in whatever, you know, like January of every year, I just go to TurboTax.com. I type in stuff, and whatever it says, I have no idea about the magic that happened behind there, right? I have absolutely no clue how, how much taxes I should actually pay. I do know that if I enter this number and the number goes up, then I like that number more than sometimes when I enter that number and the number says I owe them. So I like to try to change that number, and then I try to you know, try to dial that up and down a little bit, but I'm, I actually don't even think you're allowed to do that, and so I try not to do that. <laughs> it was confusing then, just like it is today. So the people back then, the tax collectors, would sit in their booth or whatever it might be, and they would gather the taxes from their people, and they were part of the community in which, they were a citizen of the community in which they're collecting taxes. They weren't, a Ro- it wasn't a Roman person, it was a Jewish person. This Matthew, the tax collector, would have been a Jewish person who had something in him that was willing to go to his countrymen and say, I am taking this portion of your crop or your catch or whatever it might be, you owe me this much money. And tax collectors were known to take a lot more than they really needed to give to the Romans, and they became very wealthy by doing that, so it took a very sp- very special kind of person to become to be willing to become a tax collector back then. They were hated because they were seen as Roman sympathizers they were like on the same team like they 're the, the insiders amongst us who would be cool with taking our money and then giving it to the people who put us on crosses or kill our babies or do like these atrocious things right so tax collectors were seen as the lowest of the low, and they're always listed with sinners, if you read about them, the tax collectors and the sinners. So you have to picture that when they rolled up on Matthew, and there's all the disciples, and Simon the zealot is probably there, and Jesus is walking by, and he sees the tax booth, and he's like, oh yeah. He looks back at his disciples, and he's like, this is gonna teach a lesson that is very, very important for everyone to know and understand. And he says, Matthew... Follow me. And all the disciples are like, No, he didn't. Oh no, he didn't do that. And Simon the Zealot's like looking for a gun or something. He's like, All right, I don't know what to do here. And Matthew, it says, stood up from his booth and he walked over and he he jumped in line. What what united the tax collectors, there there are four things. Um or no, I already said that. I don't have to say that again. Good. Did I no i didn 't so when it united the tax collectors, I was Simon the zealot. Hold on while I lose my mind in front of you. All right, The four things that united them they had a, an extreme devotion to opportunity. they had a commitment to affluent, affluence right to riches they had a, they, or they were hated and despised by everyone, so they were forced to unite and survive together. So when Jesus calls Matthew into the fold to be a disciple. I think he was doing it to tell us something about what it means to be a disciple. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of meaning in there. One of them is um, just the simple fact that you're going to walk into this room. You could walk into this room and not have a clue what we're thinking. And you could look at this whole group of people and think, you know what? I don't know if I have a single thing that I agree with this group of people about. But what I would tell you is you are absolutely the person who needs to walk in this room and hear about Jesus. And Jesus is going to actually look at you and say, you, you need to follow me. It has nothing to do with you matching the demographic in this room to become a disciple of Jesus. In fact, you being an outsider, what this shows us is you're like the prime candidate. It's like he's walking around looking for people who are absolutely polar opposites. People who get up in the morning and think about nothing but getting rid of Roman occupation and then bringing in to the guy who is sitting there every morning thinking, how can I get more money from this whole, this whole enterprise called Roman occupation? And he puts them both in the same, uh, the same room. So what happens when you become a disciple, uh, first and foremost, is your priorities absolutely shift. So if you're like Simon the Zealot, you're no longer, that's no longer your identity. All of a sudden you're jumping behind the rabbi. You're going to follow him. You're going to go wherever he goes. You're going to try to become him. And so you're no longer Simon the Zealot. Now you're Simon the disciple of Jesus who has these tendencies to be a zealot. Who has these, th- these convictions uh, about politics and things. And all of a sudden he has to start wrestling with which of those convictions are in line with following Jesus, which ones are not, he has to decide which ones am I going to reject which, ones, which convictions am I going to redeem? Because there are some really great qualities about being a zealot, right? This is a guy of passion. He's a guy of conviction. You want to keep that. You don't want to lose that. But if it's all hatred towards the Romans, you better believe that following Jesus, you've got to lose that. He's going to teach you about loving your enemies and praying for your enemies, things like that. So your priorities change. You're no longer Simon the zealot. You are a disciple of Jesus who is coming into line with it. If you are Matthew, the tax collector, and you decide to follow Jesus, you're no longer, that's not your identity, right? Like a core piece of you. You're no longer Matthew, the tax collector. Instead, you are uh, Matthew, the disciple, who has this, this tendency and this ability to see opportunity, which is a great thing, um, and to be a, maybe business-minded and things like that. But all of a sudden, you're, you're seeing how far off base those are, and you're either rejecting them or you're redeeming them and bringing them in line with where Jesus is heading. It's the same for us today. Uh, Actually, Jonathan Alexander at North Shore made a brilliant comment uh, a few months ago, and I haven't forgotten it. He said that when you decide to follow Jesus, you've probably still got your place in the world. Maybe you're a teacher or you're a a web developer or whatever you might be, a mom. Uh, And what he said was, you have to know that when, when you are a web developer, for example, you are not actually, that's not actually your place. It's not actually your thing. That's not actually your vision. What you are is you are a disciple, cleverly disguised as a web developer. If you're a teacher, you're not actually a teacher. The vision that the principal is giving you or whoever um, the parents I don't know where that comes from you're not actually a teacher. Instead, you're a disciple, cleverly disguised as a teacher. For me, I'm an operations director at a nonprofit in Kirkland, but not really. the vision of stronger families in Kirkland actually isn 't my vision I am there and i 've got my desk and i 've got my team and all these excel sheets because i 'm a huge nerd but i 'm actually to the core of me i 'm a disciple of Jesus, cleverly disguised as an operations director that 's something that happens to you when you become a disciple whether you 're coming in from like you know you 've got these core convictions that are nothing like what you find in in Arbor Church or whatever, or whether you 're someone like um, you know Peter and the crew who are Just good old Jewish boys, and they they know the Old Testament front and back and all that stuff. No matter the spectrum, that's what happens. So first, your priorities are shifted, and you see yourself differently. The other thing that happens is your relationships, or even you could call it your relationship filter, actually changes. So all of a sudden, Matthew and Judas, or I'm sorry, Matthew and Simon, the zealot, are following Jesus, and they spend all day, every day together. They sleep in the same room or you know under the stars wherever wherever jesus is going that group of 12 is following behind and matthew is walking and Jew, or simon is right next to him the entire time what you don't read in the new testament which to me is um very revealing is you never hear of simon the zealot and matthew the tax the tax collector having issues and this does not sh- um, shy away from stuff like that like when peter sticks his foot in his mouth the New Testament is the first thing to write it down and be like, oh yeah, Peter did this. It was an idiot moment for him. <laughs> when, whenever that stuff happens, it's one of the reasons I actually believe the Bible is because it, you wouldn't make the stuff up. They are, at times, boneheads, right? And they make, this, or make these mistakes and the New Testament records it. Uh, but what you don't hear is that Simon and Matthew had all these issues. It's because what happened was once they fell in line behind Jesus, All of a sudden, they were following something so much bigger than the things that they had their minds on before that all of their priorities shifted, and they started to match up with Jesus, and it made the rest not necessarily go away. I'm sure Simon still had his convictions about the Romans, but what he saw in Jesus was the best way to oust the Romans, was the Jesus way of, of love and turning your cheek and all these different things. It changed him. For Matthew, he didn't lose his tendency to be a business-minded person and to, to, to want opportunity and stuff, but instead he saw Jesus as the actual best opportunity in front of him. And it's the same thing for us today. What, whatever we're doing or wh- whoever we are in our world, when you, when you look at Jesus and when you look at the people that he's with, you have to understand that Jesus is, it's, we mean it for real. He really is the answer that you're searching for, and you're finding it in the wrong places, both for Simon, Matthew, and for all of us in between. That's what's happening. The other thing is, uh, disciples. I'll say that, like the main point of the morning because I didn't do a good job in first service of saying disciples are united to Jesus, and are united to his disciples. That's not something that we get to decide between. So you don't get to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, like he's my rabbi, I'm going to try to become like him. But all the other Christians are kind of a weird bunch. And I'm going to kind of, I'm going to feel my way through that one and connect with some and not with others. It's, it's part of the, in a way, it's part of the deal. It's like when my sister married Bob Santucci, all of a sudden she is now part of the Santucci family and the Sant- Bob Santucci is now part of the Lee family, right? It's it's part of the uh, the unity that's going to happen between the two. It's the same exact thing for us. When we're called to be a disciple, yes, you're called to follow Jesus, but you're actually also called to find yourself in unity with his people. Whoever is on your right, whoever is on your left, uh, and then you follow Jesus together. So for us, I'm not saying like, hey, your best friend is now in this room and they're actually sitting right next to you, and that's what Jesus calls us to all I'm saying is we have to have a different filter on our relationships. You, you should be connecting with people that don't fit your normal filter for trying to build a friendship. So if you're the, the, the mom of three, I said that because my wife is, um, and you're, you know there's a certain demographic of like I, I need to connect with other moms or whatever, how cool would it be if we as a family, my wife and I, all of a sudden found ourselves just totally cool with being or befriending an older couple whose kids are out of the house or who never had kids and stuff like that. That is part of the beauty of being a disciple. Like Simon and Matthew coming into the fold, I think Jesus is teaching the same thing for us. You get to be unified to him, but you also need to be unified with his people. And that's how we we walk forward. So I'm going to pray right now, and my prayer is going to be that um, as a people— we would grab a hold of that, that following Jesus isn't just about you and Jesus, and then it's a lonely, road, you know, a lonely dusty trail ahead, but that now we, we actually are following him so closely that we link arms with his disciples who are on our right and our left, and we press into that, and I hope that's something we get. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, um, I am thrilled that you, have, for, even for me personally, I'm thrilled that you called me and that you said, hey, I want you to be my disciple because um, I have tendencies within me. I'm, um, I, I have leanings. I have all these things that I know are be, being brought to bear, and they're aligning with you. I know every person in this room has the same thing going on. In fact, I, I would imagine, Lord, that there are people in this room who feel like they are outsiders in this group, and I would just pray that you would help us all to see that that is actually part of the beautiful story that you're telling. That there is no such thing as an outsider in this group. We're all outsiders that you're drawing near. And I pray that you would just give us a vision as a whole church um, to see ourselves in that way and just um, follow you in a way that really honors your name by being united to you and to each other. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.